Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 5, Episode 8 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. For this episode, we were joined by longtime friend of the podcast, Nenad Barbidiker. Just to give you a flavour of what we covered, we put Will Still's post-meme stability under the Road to Nowhere microscope. We discussed Frozenone's precocious 20-year-old Argentinian Loney. We analysed Jose Bordelas's indisputable track record and we looked at Eintracht Frankfurt's positive troublemakers. Do check out the show notes for a comprehensive running order. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Hopefully you're all staying safe and hopefully you're all staying well. Enjoy. Well, we're well and truly in the Christmas spirit here on the Road to Nowhere podcast. I certainly am. Rudy Barlow's looking very festive and Michael Jones as well. All three of us feeling the, the Christmas cheer, perhaps. Rudy Barlow, are, are you feeling the Christmas cheer or have I just assumed that you were feeling very festive? I was feeling quite festive at the weekend. It started on my Christmas cards because um, Alan Feely, formerly of uh, this podcast a wee while ago. Um, yes, he's coming to visit next weekend, so I'm uh, trying to trying to get ahead of time. Um, so we had the Christmas tunes on. We've got Dean Martin's classic Christmas. You can't really beat that. Oh yes, oh yes, you can't. I'm gonna. I, I don't remember if I said this on the podcast last year, although it was a slightly different year last year, wasn't it? What with the World Cup, but my th- top three Christmas songs are Greg Lake, I believe in Father Christmas. Christopher, a spaceman came traveling, and Elton John, step into Christmas. If you just give me those three songs on repeat, um, probably eventually we'd get bored of them. But I do enjoy those three absolute anthems. Uh, so maybe, maybe you you can <laughs> you you can all have a think for the next episode about your favorite songs. I won't put you on the spot right now, but Michael Jones, uh, again, I'm going to ask you: Are you feeling in the Christmas spirit already? It is what the 28th of November is probably slightly early to have your Christmas tree up, but my. Christmas trees there, it's sitting in the corner, looking very beautiful. But Michael Jones, are you in the Christmas spirit? I am a little bit more now. <laughs> I um, I think I was just thinking of my Christmas songs, and I think I, I seem to like ones with drummers in or something. I like Stop the Cavalry. Mm. Oh, yeah. Little drummer boy. But uh, yeah, I'm in some kind of good spirit. I just heard uh, Barlow do some sort of English accent and I'm looking forward to hearing more of that closer to the time but <laughs> I um no yeah all very good I was actually just wondering Paula so with in Spain like is it the same here where like it gets to the first of November and you get people like blasting out Christmas tunes all the time not the, quite the same no I feel like there is like a quite a big Christmas movement uh certainly brought in the same way that Halloween's kind of been brought to Spain by America there is a enormous gargantuan Christmas tree right in the middle of uh, Sol in, in Madrid which is 
yeah, it, it takes some kind of cr- cranking of your neck to to get up to look at the top of it. But but yeah, <laughs> it's not quite the same. I mean, they have Reyes on the sixth of January, which is when they kind of get their presents. The three kings come and uh, throw presents off the side of a. Uh, kind of procession but uh, but yeah it's not quite the same but it's certainly going to end up going that way I think Very nice very nice all good to know every day is a school day I'm heading down to London tomorrow actually uh, with work and as part of that work visit I'm going to tie in uh, a trip to to the markets at Covent Gardens and, and take in all the lovely Christmas sites so I think post this trip I'll be feeling even more Christmassy but yeah enough Christmas chat for now probably a lot of listeners come to the podcast to seek uh, solace I suppose or rather to seek refuge from all this Christmas chat and the relentless Christmas songs on the radio these days so I think what we'll do is we'll park the Christmas chat there for now and we'll turn our attention to Spanish football and La Liga. Now, Barlow football is not known for its moral fortitude, but it does reliably reward results. Jose Bordelas is back at Hitafe this season and like clockwork, Hitafe are on the up. It's an uncomfortable story, Barlow, but it is one that is getting harder to avoid. Yeah, I mean, Mason Greenwood is obviously the, the kind of uncomfortable aspect of this he he's obviously joined Hitafe on loan from Manchester United where he's trying to kind of get his career back on track I mean I think most of our listeners will probably be familiar with uh, Greenwood's kind of story and the fact that he was kind of gonna come back from Manchester United but then ended up not Hitafe were only too happy to be perfectly honest to give him a chance to to kind of come in and, and rehab his career and and yeah it's going not just well for him but well for Hitafe in general I mean it, it's sort of not really been picked up on the kind of gravity of Greenwood's actions I don't think in the Spanish media and for that reason a lot of Hitafe fans will be pretty kind of unclear on on exactly why it is controversial to have him in the team but I mean let's not be a bit bush he is a player of, of higher quality than Hitafe can afford on the market. I mean, he's got four goals and three assists in his 11 games. And for the Hitafe side, that, I mean, it's it's quite disliked for other reasons in Spain, mostly kind of the style of play and Bordelas' kind of cantankerous attitude, which in the past I've kind of been a fan of, but it makes it a little bit harder to love when uh, Greenwood is, is on the opposing side and and yeah they've been playing really well I mean they're through 14 games now they're in eighth place they are kind of five points off Betis in seventh so they're a little bit removed from the uh, European race but they're doing all of this without Enes Undal who's their star striker from last season he was amongst the top kind of four or five scorers um, in the division last season he scored about 15-16 goals I think it was as well so he's been out with an ACL injury he's out until at least January we're thinking and so it's it's pretty impressive what Bordelast is getting out of his side even taking into account the fact that uh, Greenwood is in the team and he's really started to become a key part of their of their offence but in terms of a goal scorer they've got Borja Mayoral who's never really been consistent I mean he came through at Real Madrid and he was always promising but never really hit heights and uh, and yeah they're they are the typical Hitafe side I mean they probably conceded a few more than Bordelas would like but they're defensive they're rocky they're, they're tricky to handle and through 14 games you look at the next kind of five fixtures that will 
wrap up the first kind of round of La Liga, the first kind of half of La Liga. And they've got Atletico Madrid to come. But apart from that, I think it's right, Vallecano, uh, Las Palmas, um, Valencia, Sevilla, Rayo, um, Sevilla as well. And that's they're all teams that Hatafe will feel pretty comfortable beating or at least having a, a good go at. So, so yeah, there's a real chance that they finish this kind of first half of the season in the European races. And admittedly before uh, Greenwood joined them, but they were my kind of surprise of the season. I reckon on the kind of BBC column, I was doing the kind of quick hits things to look out for. And, and Bordelas, he's just, you can't really argue with his track record, especially at Hatafe. When he takes over sides, he gets the best out of them. And this is a side that weren't safe until the last day of the season. He ended up keeping them up at the end of last season on the final day. And it was a matter of kind of a point here or a point there. It was a kind of nerve tingling nil-nil draw against Fire Lead, where absolutely nothing happened in the game, but because of the stakes, because they were so high, um, it was it was kind of a tense occasion. But he's gone from there to a point where now, as I say, 14 games through the season, they're 11 points clear of the drop zone. Uh, they're closer to Europe than they are to um to the relegation fight and, and it, it really is a testament to to their work even if yeah there's elements of this that we're perhaps not comfortable with and make them even less likable for many in La Liga. Bordelas's ability to organize a, a group of players, his ability to push them so hard but manage to kind of keep the squad on side and create this mentality. And even though Hatafe haven't really necessarily been a story. They've only been beaten three times this season. Um, and for context, I mean, there's only Real Betis, Barcelona, Girona and Real Madrid who've been beaten less so far. So yeah, it, it is really impressive what they're doing and the way that he seems to just be able to get the best out of sides and really push players that for many don't necessarily have that much to give or, or players elevate players that the likes of kind of Adam Barry previously who's now injured, but Maximovic kind of workman-like players into kind of Europa League style players or Europa League quality players. And and just quickly to to wrap up on this and wrap up on Greenwood. I mean, at the start of the season, there was three or four clubs that were fined for chant chanting Greenwood die. But outside of that, there's not really been too much reaction and he's kind of not really had too much blowback. And I think it's it's kind of depressing on one level, but also not surprising that Greenwood seems to be kind of just smoothly kind of seeping back into football. And in one or two years' time, I, I think we'll, most of us will remember it, but it's not going to have a huge impact on his career. Meanwhile, there's been another sacking at the bottom, making it five in La Liga before Christmas. Granada have dismissed Paco Lopez after just seven points from 14 games. It's something that opens up a wider debate for you, though. Yeah, it's an interesting one because Paco Lopez is, I mean, we've praised his work in the past when he's been at Levante. He's done a, a sterling job there. He took over this Granada side that weren't necessarily, I mean, they'd gone down, so they obviously had the resources and some players to kind of get themselves back up. But he took over them, he won the Segunda with them. They were playing really good, expansive football. And they go up to La Liga and they have a summer that, let's be honest, it, it wasn't great. I mean, they had a lot of kind of 
uh, ownership troubles in terms of they were kind of changing hands and there wasn't really any investment that wasn't already planned. They brought in one or two players, but essentially this was a Segunda winning squad, but still a Segunda squad that Lopez has been asked to do this job with. And, and it was interesting, he said in his farewell press conference, that his plan, the club's plan almost before they sacked him, obviously, was to just get to the winter transfer window still in touch and intact and then see if they can kind of do do a little bit more. Because, I mean, this Granada side, they did sign Lucas Boyer, who I think has been decent, if not spectacular for them up front, but they lack a little bit of investment and a few more pieces might have been making the difference for a team that has scored 19 goals in 14 games. I mean, they've, they've won one, they've drawn four, they've lost nine, and they are conceding a lot of goals. They're the, the side that's conceded the second most after Almeria, um, and it's it's almost like kind of two and a half goals a game. So that is a lot. Granada aren't solid defensively, and after Alaves beat them 3-1 in a big relegation six-pointer on a Friday night, that was it for, for Lopez. And you sort of understand it because... They're still within two points of Real Mallorca, who do have a game in hand, but they're they're not cut adrift right now. This is a chance to get a reaction, but they've brought in uh, it's Alexander Medina, I think, and I'll be honest, don't know too much about the guy. I mean, he's worked in Argentina, done a couple jobs at Dayeres, Belisarsfield. He's also managed at Nacional in Uruguay, and and he did a reasonable job in Uruguay. He, I mean, Nacional, one of the two kind of big behemoths and um in Uruguayan football, so they're expected to win, but he did win two of the kind of league sections, league titles with them. But ultimately, this is a guy that's coming into European football, European management without any experience. And you're placing that against Lopez, and he supposedly did do very well in the interviews, according to the reports. It was Ideal who were saying that it was kind of his interview process, his plan for the side that convinced the sporting director, Tognotti, and and Granada themselves to hire him and and maybe prioritize him over other coaches, and I guess once you've just made the decision to sack somebody, it makes sense. But looking at their CVs, looking at what Paco Lopez has done, um, you understand the desire for reaction. But there's no way that you can argue that Medina is an upgrade on Lopez based purely on kind of managerial merits in terms of what we know of them. And we've seen this with kind of various sides that have brought in coaches from elsewhere. I mean, Sevilla are a kind of more profile example. I mean, more high profile example. I mean, they've got Diego Alonso, who's not had a reaction since he came in and they sacked him into Libar, somebody who wasn't getting a reaction, but they know his qualities and obviously did win that Europa League with them. Um, Almeria have obviously sacked their manager too and gone for Gaetje Garitano. It's it's an interesting debate because Celta Vigo are the one of those bottom three that haven't sacked their manager, Rafa Benitez obviously being the highest profile name that we're talking about here. And it goes to the question is how long do you give a manager to react these days? Because somebody was making the point, I think it was Quintana or I think it was Quintana on La Pitara de Quintana on Radio Marca. And he was saying that Look, I mean, you win Segunda, you do all this good work for an entire season, and then you get 10, 11 games to essentially save your job in Primera when you've not had the investment that you need, when you've not had the resources that others around you have had. And it, it's an interesting question as to raise what's fair to put in terms of these managers, in terms of expectations on them, and and really kind of assess where we are in terms of management. Is it 10 games you get 
of bad form before teams look for a reaction and they look to to kind of bring someone new and even if it's just for that managerial bounce and and yeah I think it's a really interesting question because you'll get some teams that will have had hard schedules to start the season and will have struggled as a result and other sides that will have started off first five games well may have got 10 points in those games and they'll their managers will be safe and will have had the time to work and had the time to kind of build something here whereas the likes of Lopez who yeah I, I understand why they've sacked him but I think it's an interesting debate as to how much what do we expect of these managers how long do we give them and obviously each case is individualized and part of this is with the analysis that Medina's come in and doesn't really have a track record in La Liga but certainly yeah it's it's a question that I don't have the answer to, but it's one that's uh, been rolling around my mind since Paco Lopez has been sacked. Yeah, it's certainly a timely debate, and I think it's a pertinent issue, not just in La Liga. I think if you look at Andonia Raiola in the Premier League, you could probably make the case um, with the tough fixture list bomb have had to start. But coming back to Spain, and you were at Vallecas on Saturday to see Barcelona stumble to a 1-1 draw against Rayo Vallecano. Just give us your flash analysis of a Barcelona side that are fast approaching crisis mode and a Rayo side that are almost the polar opposite. Yeah, Rayo, just to kind of highlight this, they're unbeaten five games against Barcelona and they're in the top half of the table. Uh, they've 19 points from 14 games and at the end of the game, I was kind of speaking to a couple of Rayo fans and they weren't overjoyed with a point, which just goes to show you not only how far Barcelona have fallen in terms of their order, but also how far Rayo have come in the fact that they feel like they can beat any team they take on. They feel comfortable and confident against Real Madrid. They got a point against Real Sociedad. They got a point. This is a team that competes to a two, as they say in Spain, kind of toe to toe. And and yeah, it, it really is impressive what they've done and the fact that Francisco has come in for Iraola, who built this side and not really missed the beat with this Rayo side. So, so hats off to him and the work that he's doing. And especially David Cobeno, who's the sporting director there and I think brings a lot of the stability for the club that off the pitch is a bit of a disaster. So, so it's really quite impressive the work that they're doing. But just the contrast between the two sides. I mean, I think I'll probably get into a larger Barcelona analysis in a couple of weeks' time because they're going to face Girona, Atletico Madrid and Porto in the kind of gauntlet of games which could define their season and potentially Xavi's future. But it really, the thing that really stood out to me is I was watching this Barcelona side and it was slow and there was a lot of touches and they struggled to create chances and they were better in the second half in this game. They eventually get an equaliser in the last 10 minutes after Unai Lopez has scored a strike from distance. But when Rayo get the ball, there's two or three options ahead of them. They pass the ball and they go. They move, they look for a pass, and they usually have one or two options in or outside them and forward or back. And that's basically simple positioning football. But they also do things with two free touches. There's, there's very few Rayo players that are taking kind of three or four touches. I think EC Palathon is the one that has the quality that they trust to kind of maybe hold on and dictate a little bit more. And whereas you compare that with Barcelona, each player is taking so many touches on the ball when they're looking forward. And I don't know whether it's a question of Xavi not being able to position his players in places where 
the uh, the ball carrier has the option to pass it to them or has the option to find them, or whether it's simply just an issue of not being able to inspire enough confidence in his side to play one or two touch football, to play fast, to play amb- ambitious football, and to really believe in not only yourself to get the ball there swiftly at pace, but also your teammate to be able to take the right touch and to be able to find that space and, and make the right movement. And it's all just a little bit static and stodgy at Barcelona right now. And compared to Rao, who are fast, sleek and well-drilled, it really was quite the contrast, especially for Xavi, who's going into this this very tricky run, as I say. Yeah, Barlow, quite interesting to hear you talk about that contrast and yeah, enlightening, as always, to hear you tell us about the latest goings-on in La Liga. OK, I think what we'll do is we'll draw to a close our analysis of Spanish football there. We're going to dial in Nanad Barbidiker. Nanad is a long-time friend of the podcast and we always enjoy listening to what he has to say. So we're going to bring Nanad in to speak about the latest goings-on in France and the latest goings-on in Germany. We'll be right back. In France, Will still enjoyed a prolonged spell in the social media spotlight when his France side went a remarkable 19 games unbeaten in Ligue 1 last season. With the post-meme dust having long since settled at the Stade Auguste Delon, the 31-year-old coach has continued to demonstrate his blossoming managerial credentials. Now, at the time of recording 12 or so games into the current campaign, Rance sit in fifth place and find themselves well in contention in the race for a Champions League spot. So, to put Will Still and the club from the northeast of France under the road to nowhere microscope, to look beyond the headlines and the ever so slightly tiring football manager references, we are delighted to be joined by long term friend of the podcast and perhaps one of the nicest chaps in the world of football journalism, Nanad Barbudiker. Nanad, it's great to have you on the podcast again. How have you been? Part of kind, Ali. I'm I'm doing I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Just back in Manchester after a uh, couple of weeks off in India, and I have to say, well, looking at the weather back, I am slightly regretting my choice of not skipping the winter this time around in yeah. in the UK. But yeah. no, all good, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. Very well. Uh, getting in the, the festive spirit. I was uh, putting the Christmas tree up on Friday. I know it's. Slightly early, but uh, my mum works, uh, she's retired, but works in a gift shop part-time. And so throughout December, she's very busy and Lovely. a tradition whereby she'll help me decorate the flat. Um, my dad comes up as well and they bring the dog up. So it was one of the last available days that we could get the tree up. So that was Friday's uh, job was putting the Christmas tree up, putting the Christmas decorations up. So yeah, feeling decidedly festive heading into <laughs> this episode and yeah on the whole feeling good and I'm looking forward to to the festive madness that, that awaits us in the world of football and in the world generally but yeah let's let's unpack Rance because there is clearly a lot to unpack with this side looking at Rance in our usual detailed way what have been for you anyway Nanad the main talking points from their campaign so far yeah I think Judging by the way they finished last season, Ali, mm-hmm. I think there was a big demand and a big question of Will Still and Rance in general as to whether they can take that next step and build mm-hmm. on what they build on the success of what they had last season. And clearly, I think the answer so far is yes. They've had a few stumbles along the way, but like I said, you know, finishing now in standing in fifth currently in the league table is impressive. Uh, when you consider that 
teams like Marseille and Lens are experiencing a little bit of a transition season, it does feel like there is an opportunity for a team like Reims to stake their claim and possibly maybe push on for one of those European spots. So you never know. But I think another another big um, issue that I had with them and sort of debate in my head was whether they would be able to adjust to the absence of Folar and Balogun, who, as we now know, is thriving in some ways at, at Monaco. And to lose a big number nine presence like him is is significant, especially in, in the context of France, who admittedly are not as well-equipped in terms of resources as the clubs around them in Liga. But I think they've done exceedingly well uh, in adjusting to his absence. Uh, you know, you also have to remind yourself of the fact that they have had some decent income this summer, uh, owing to the fact that PSG's um, option to buy uh, Hugo Ekitike has been activated. So now they have him. So a little bit of money from there. And uh, I think Balogun's exit also opened up some space for wages and whatnot. So they've acquired and they've recruited smartly um, this summer buying players like Keito Nakamura uh, from Lask in Austria. Um, they've also brought in Mohamed Darami, who's featured quite heavily in their, in their side more recently. Um, so, yeah, really exciting recruitment. And again, just uh, building on the success that they had last season as, you know, a team that dominates out of possession and really outruns teams all the time. And they they pride themselves on that. In fact, I think there was a quote from Will Still the other day from one of his press conferences saying that we have a game project here that requires a lot of high-intensity running. To move forward and look for the opponent high, you have to run. So we have profiles that have been targeted and recruited in order to apply that game to this game project here. And it's clear that, that this approach for runs is working really well. They've also got uh, Josh Wilson Ebron who, uh, or Esbron, know what the right pronunciation is there for him but uh yeah really exciting player to watch as well like bringing something different than the more functional Theo Dismet who you are more uh, accustomed to seeing on the left so yeah another very exciting player there and I think one last player to really appreciate and mention is Marshall Monetzi Ali because this is a player that last season was more of a defensive midfielder sort of playing in the pivot alongside Aizou Matusiwa who as we know is the nominal sweeper in, in Rance's system. Munetsi this season has become a much more of a battering ram box crusher whose only role is to be that box-to-box presence but really just make sure that he's always there in the box to attack crosses, attack space in the box. And um, and yeah, he's been doing that really well so far this season. So so yeah, props to him. And, um, and yeah, Teddy Teyuma, one last player again. I forget to mention him, but Teddy Teoma, the club's top scorer this season, um, he's brought something different to the team. Um, he's got huge creativity, huge presence in the team as well. And uh, you can see that in the way he performs as well. You know, he scored a brilliant free kick um, this season and he's already scored, what, four goals, like I said, club top scorer. So replacing Balogun, circling back to that point, re- replacing Balogun has been done by not bringing a like-for-like profile, but rather distributing the goals amongst the team if that makes sense. So they've had, what, nine different goal scorers this season, uh, which is significant because I think they're just behind PSG and Monaco for, for goals scored in Liga. And so, you know, props to Will still. There's there's clearly a lot of success to be had with this approach. Yeah, and apologies if you can hear a slight whirring in the background. I think it's my boiler. It gets um, a little bit noisy sometimes when it's first coming on. So if you can hear that and if the listener can hear that, I do apologise. But yeah, totally would echo everything you're saying about Will Sell, about 
rants. And I think what we've seen from Will still is just confirmation that he is a very promising manager. I think there was this maybe not a fear as such, but there was this feeling that perhaps it was a prolonged new manager bounce that that maybe it wasn't sustainable what he was doing. But what we've seen at the start of this season, we're now, what, 12, 13 games into the new campaign. We're seeing that he is a very good manager. We've seen him lose a player of real quality in forward and Balogun. And we've seen, as you say, him be able to, yeah, just make those tweaks, make sure that the right players are brought in and then use those players appropriately. They are, as you say, all action, very enthusiastic team. And yeah, for that reason, uh, over and above the whole Will Still narrative, the Will Still storyline, Rance are one of the most intriguing teams in Ligue 1. And I think as well, before we focus in on Will Still and his future, perhaps, we do need to say there's another really interesting aspect of this team is the fact that it's so multinational. I think in one it game, yeah. in one game they had 10 different nationalities. You know, they they do not rule out any destination as a potential source of new recruits. And I think the team really benefits from that. You know, on the one hand, you could say, well, you've got people from different backgrounds speaking different languages. Um, how is that going to feed into team chemistry, team morale, and how the team performs in terms of the overall cohesion? But I think what you see with Will Stiller is a very good man-manager as well. He's able to bring those different personalities together to unite them under one banner, I suppose, and really make them feel part of a wider effort, you know, a team effort. And I think that in itself, yeah, is, is another string to Will Stills' bow. Yeah, he's, he's really blossoming into a really impressive manager. Okay, we've obviously spoken more about the team there. You've mentioned some intriguing players within the starting eleven, and there are no shortage of such players, but it does feel like we do have to spotlight Will Still himself. Now, he signed a contract extension in the summer to 2025. He brought in his brother as well, and that suggested that, certainly in the short to medium term, he sees his future at Rance, but with all that said, and with all due respect to Rance, there will naturally, you would imagine, be interest from elsewhere in Will Still's managerial services. So, thinking maybe beyond 2025, where would be the ideal next step for Will Still as he looks to progress his admittedly still fledgling managerial career, Nanad? <laughs> Pun unintended there, Ali. I liked it. <laughs> but yeah, I think 2025 is a long, long time. And I think it depends uh, what kind of opportunities are available for him. I certainly do think that he has the capabilities and the managerial nows I like the man management now that so you talk about there to manage at a Champions League level. So I could very easily see him progress to that point within uh, in this time frame. And again, because of the very factor of him being English, you, there's inevitably the question of when is he going to come to the Premier League? And I know that there have been some uh, sort of conversations and there's been some buzz in the media about a possible move to West Ham at some point. And realistically speaking, I don't see that as an impossible event, uh, given that West Ham are the only project in the Premier League right now that I could realistically see pivoting away from their current management. Uh, David Moyes, for all of his success, for all of the brilliant success that he's had in, in cup competitions, I think there is a desire in the fan base to maybe want more because they are difficult to watch. And you would imagine that someone like Will Still is going to come in and tear up the script almost and make them fun again. So 
So I think currently speaking, at least, I think West Ham is is the team I do see as a likely possibility uh, for him. Uh, but beyond them, again, it really depends on where the projects of these current uh, big, say, I'd say outside of the big six clubs are. So clubs like Aston Villa, how far do they reach in their aspirations towards European qualification and uh, sort of European success even? Um, and then you have clubs like Brighton. Brighton's, I mean, Roberto De Zerbi is always wanted every summer. So is Will still a potential candidate for uh, Roberto De Zerbi's replacement? Um, that's another that's another point. But uh, but yeah, I think inevitably I do see him progressing to the Premier League at some point. Um, and given his multicultural sort of background, you can never really rule out him going to some uh, some other league, maybe even beyond before the Premier League, even going to maybe Germany, maybe maybe La Liga, maybe a project that uh, attracts him. Uh, you never know. But I do think the end goal for someone like him is the Premier League because of his personality, because of all the, the buzz that has been already generated for him. And I think, yeah, there there is definitely a, um, there is definitely a sort of uh, inevitability, sense of inevitability to him going to the Premier League. So, yeah, that's, that's how I see his career panning out. Yeah, I think he's obviously, as you alluded to, Nanad, he's spoken about his love for West Ham. It would seem to be the perfect marriage. Uh, not that we want to be disrespectful to David Moyes, who's obviously done quite the job winning winning the Conference League with West Ham and you know taking them to, to, to a very good place. They've obviously faltered. Well, maybe not obviously faltered, but you know there is a feeling that that particular relationship is maybe coming to an end in the next season or two. So I think, yeah, in terms of an ultimate destination for him, in terms of eventually moving to manage in England, I think West Ham would be the perfect place for him. It would really spice up uh, that that narrative. Uh, but I think before then, you'll probably agree with me here, Nanad, it would do him a lot of good to to stay at Lens. You know, it's a great place to manage. Absolutely. The, there's, there's good backing there. Obviously, as you were saying, the, the board went out, they, they opened the checkbook. Obviously, there was money the Hugo Ekitiki money coming in, but the board were willing to spend money over the summer. They were willing to recruit and bring in the players that, that Still and his team wanted to bring in. Uh, so I think absolutely he he should be staying at Vans, certainly for the remainder of this season and then going into the next season. So I suppose staying there until the end of his current contract, which runs until 2025. And I think that that would do him a lot of good. And then potentially at that point, looking at how far he's come, looking at the extent to which he's managed to refine his managerial skill set. Maybe at that point, you're then looking at potentially a move to the Bundesliga. He might think he's ready for the Premier League, but I don't think, again, I don't think it would do him any harm to go to the Bundesliga, maybe with a, a Wolfsburg, for example, where you can work with an interesting project. You can work with younger players, a forward-thinking recruitment strategy, shall we say, without really the pressure that you're going to have at West Ham because the minute you move to West Ham, the minute you move to England, that pressure is just going to ramp up. The expectation is going to be there. The entitlement to an extent is going to be there as well, the self-entitlement. And I, I say that not to be rude. I just say that because there is this expectation with Premier League clubs to constantly be pushing forward, to constantly be improving, to constantly be getting results. And I think for well still, he's clearly becoming a very good manager but yeah see out the remainder of your contract with Rance they've done a lot of good for you you've been very good for them but they've also been very good for you maybe then look at a move to the Bundesliga and then 
after a few years there because he's still so young than Nadi as well. He's still Absolutely. only 31. He's got so much time on his hands. And and obviously, Nagelsmann was, was fast-tracked and it didn't quite work out at Bayern. I'm not saying that Will Stills on the same level as Nagelsmann was at that point in Nagelsmann's career. <laughs> but uh, but I just I just think, you know, you wouldn't want him to, to jump in too quickly to a job which on paper seems like the dream move, i.e. West Ham. But very quickly... If he, he makes that move too prematurely, shall we say, all of a sudden mm. it can maybe unravel and then he needs to then build up his reputation again. He needs to, yeah, take a step back and maybe go and manage elsewhere. Whereas if he goes, sees out his contract and goes to Germany and then maybe maybe after that he then heads to London to manage West Ham. It, it would make sense, Nanad, as you say, but let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. He's a great manager. He's heading in the right direction, but he does as well seem quite grounded and I think he himself will be more aware than, than anybody else that he he shouldn't rush into any post for example at mm. West Ham but regardless fantastic manager his Rans team are so good to watch so good to follow okay we're going to take a short break now Nanad and I will come back in a few moments time we're going to look at a team that's to an extent, gone under the radar, a team that we've not covered for a while on the podcast. We're going to put Eintracht Frankfurt under the Road to Nowhere microscope. We'll be right back. In Germany, Eintracht Frankfurt headed into the new season having lost the likes of Rondal Kolomuani, Jesper Lindstrom, Gibral So and Daichi Kamada. Those losses, coupled with the arrival of a new man in the dugout in the form of Dino Topmuller, left us wondering just what exactly to expect from the Eagles this time around. With the Bundesliga's winter break fast approaching, the picture at Deutsche Bank Park is now thankfully much clearer. Topmuller's side sit seventh in the table and had gone eight games unbeaten in all competitions prior to the recent international break. Now, that run did admittedly come to an end on match day 12 against a Dennis Undav-inspired Stuttgart, but the outlook still looks fairly positive for the club. So, Nanad, how have Frankfurt adapted to life without Kolomuani in particular, and what can we expect from them across the rest of the season? Yeah, I think they've done really, really well, Ali. Uh, Kolomuani, obviously a big presence uh, in their attack, and really the, the sort of spearhead of that very exciting Frankfurt side um, last season. Uh, alongside him, of course, Jesper Lindstrom as well. So they lost two big players uh, this summer, but replacing them this season, and I, th- I thought this was really shrewd business in bringing in Omar Mamouche from Werfel Wolfsburg on a free transfer, and then bringing in uh, Faris Shaibi from Toulouse uh, for a fee of 10 million euros, which is, again, I think outstanding business on Frankfurt's regard to bring in two players of that caliber to replace Lindstrom and Kolomuani. And I think, admittedly, they've done really well. Mamouche especially, he's been very, very clinical. Thanks club's top scorer now with six goals in the league so far. And uh, yeah, I think he's he's brought a lot of the same strengths that Kolomuani brings to the table in terms of his tra- threat and transition. Um, but I think what's slightly maybe different from Kolomuani is Mamouche's clinical nature in the box. He's got a very, very good shot on him. And I think once he gets into the box, he manages to manufacture some really, really good shooting opportunities for himself. And I think that's clear in, in his goal scoring tally so far for Frankfurt. So, so yeah, I think 
Mamouche has been a big part of that success and replacing Kolomani. And I don't think it's as much of a conversation that, uh, you know, Frankfurt are missing Kolomani now because of someone like Mamouche really clicking in that attack alongside the likes of Shaibi, the likes of Junior Dina Abimbe, and all the other um, parts of that Frankfurt uh, ensemble that uh, Dino Topmuller has put together. So, yeah, uh, really intriguing side so far. Yeah, I think with Frankfurt, um, they, they have a really rich history. Um, certainly going back several decades, you know, that history is absolutely there. It is easy to forget that. It's also easy to forget that they did win the Europa League as recently as, as last summer. It feels like a, a lifetime ago that they did no. beat Rangers on penalties in, in the heat of Seville. And it is easy to forget that they've lost several key players. I mean, we obviously made a note of it at the top of this section, but but on the whole, um, I think with, with Frankfurt, they are a club that can quite quite easily fly under the radar, which is quite strange because they do have this fantastic fan base, they do have this excellent stadium, and they, they did also manage to reach the, the round of 16 of the Champions League last season, which which again is, is very easy to forget. Now, you wanted to mention there were quite a few interesting little anecdotes that, that we discovered when we were looking into Frankfurt before we recorded this section and I think yeah it'd be good if you could maybe tell the listener a little bit maybe about Topmuller's background and his father in particular. For sure for sure I think Dino Topmuller very very interesting uh, I think first of all choice of recruitment from Frankfurt to bring him in in the first place after having had three different managers uh, three very very different managers I should say in the past so Oliver Glasner you have Adi Huter, Niko Kovac and then you have someone like Dino Topmuller who feels a little bit underwhelming at the beginning but then I think you start to see the reasons why he's been brought in. Uh, you know, his his father, Klaus Topmuller, was also a manager at uh, at Eintracht Frankfurt. And now, I think 30 years after he managed Frankfurt, uh, Dino has come in. And Dino himself was a player with Eintracht Frankfurt, led the club to a promotion uh, to the Bundesliga as a player. And it almost feels like a homecoming and a really happy homecoming. And we've seen this far too often, Ali, where, where there's always an argument of a manager being hired or an ex-player being hired by a club and saying, oh, they know the club. They know what it's all about. But I think in this case, it's actually a positive thing because Topmall is not only a manager who's been at the club, but he also has all of the tools to, I think, do a very good job at Eintracht Frankfurt, given his background so far. He's managed in the Belgian Belgian League's lower tiers. He's also worked at Bayern, Bayern Munich, of course. He was assistant to Nagelsmann and he's clearly built up a lot of good reputation in German football. And I think his background as well, like being a fluent French speaker, has has directly translated into uh, Eintracht Frankfurt's recruitment this summer because, you know, signing Faris Shaibi, Junior Dina Abimbe, uh, players like both of those players. And then you have Elish Kiri, who's, of course, French speaker, Tunisian as well. Um, then you have Jerome Onguene, who admittedly left the club this summer. But again, another player that, did come into the Frankfurt recruitment system. Um, Niels Onkunku signed from Saint-Étienne for a field of 7.5 million. So a lot of these different, again, we were talking about multicultural being an aspect for Hans. I think the same thing applies here for Frankfurt as well. They've signed a lot of different players and William Pacho, who has uh, come in to replace Evan Ondika, who's obviously left to to Roma on uh, on a free transfer this summer. William Pacho joining from Royal Antwerp, Belgian club. Top Moller's expertise again, tying into the factor there. So I think uh, on a whole, they've really trusted him 
and it's all the more I think bold of them to do so because I think this is his first proper um, top level um, permanent manager job. So so I think it's a lot to take in in the in the in the sort of very first go. But Top Mon has done very very well with what he's done so far. Shown a lot of tactical flexibility. I watched their game yesterday against uh, Stuttgart, and uh, you know Stuttgart not a very easy team to play against. Sebastian Hones's team very very um, difficult to sort of get get a hold of uh, when when they get going. But uh, but I think yeah, Frankfurt on a whole looking very impressive. And also have to uh, also have to remember that teams like Union Berlin and Freiburg, two very very overachieving sides of of recent of recent years, are having a little bit of a dip. So there is an opportunity again for an Eintracht Frankfurt side uh, for a team like Eintracht Frankfurt, and sort of stake their claim as as part of that big six in in the Bundesliga hierarchy. So so yeah, a lot of interesting things in the works for for Top Molo and Co. Yeah, I think. And I was probably guilty to an extent as well of being slightly underwhelmed, shall we say, by the appointment of Top Muller. Uh, and, and I was aware of him and knew that he'd been working with Nagelsmann at Bayern Munich. But it wasn't until we were researching this section of the podcast that I actually came to realise probably should have should have given him a bit more respect, mm. should have <laughs> sh- should have had higher hopes and, and should not have been so surprised that he started and that Frankfurt started the season so relatively well. He obviously had success in Luxembourg with, with Dudelange, uh, which, again, how much weight do you afford to that? don't want to afford no weight at all to it, but at the same time, you don't want to read too much into it. But I think from his time there, from his time in Belgium and from his time working with Julian Nagelsmann, although it ultimately ended in tears for Nagelsmann and Bayern Munich, I think he will have gained a lot from that. And I think what we're seeing is a manager who has taken to an extent, the scenic route to not quite the top table, but almost the top table. And if, if he can continue to impress in the dugout with Frankfurt, if he can continue to yeah, mould this Frankfurt team into a really interesting watch, I think they're, I mean, most sides in the Bundesliga are really quite something to watch, really quite entertaining to watch. But Frankfurt in particular are a good watch. You know, Top Miller speaks of his positive troublemakers. So if he can continue to mould this Frankfurt side into one of the better teams in the league if he can secure European football for them it's probably based on what we've seen in the last few years anyway maybe as an expectation now that you're there or thereabouts with Frankfurt challenging for those European spots if he can continue to do that then absolutely you would you wouldn't be too surprised to see another club perhaps a bigger club than Frankfurt and again no disrespect to Frankfurt great club great history great fans cracking stadium but maybe a club another level up again maybe comes calling. I think there's a lot to unpack with with Topmore, and I think the more we see of his Frankfurt side, the more we will learn about him. But the early signs, as you suggested, Ad, the early signs are extremely positive and exciting team. A fairly young coach. I think he's, what, early 40s, isn't he? He is, yeah. So he's... He's still got, again, we, we said it with Bill Still, Top Miller still has time on his side and he's, yeah, with Julian Nagelsmann, he's worked with, with one of the best in the business. So, yeah, let's let's see how he and Eitrak Frankfurt get on across the remainder of the season. I think there's a lot to enjoy with this Frankfurt team and there's a lot to respect and admire with Dino Topmiller. Okay, Nanad, I think we will draw to a close our analysis of Frankfurt there i'll thank you for your time do you want to shout out your own league on podcast or any other work that you're doing right now 
no it's just a league of podcast for now but yeah thanks thanks for inviting me on again ali appreciate it and if if listeners have enjoyed listening to me talk about runs you can find a lot more similar league and chat over at everybody's eats you can find us on twitter at everybody's eats and you can find us on your usual podcast platforms not as regular off late but we're hoping to pick it back up and uh, yeah hopefully bring you some more enjoyable league and content in the coming weeks so thanks again ali brilliant nanad yeah if the listeners enjoy what we do you will 100% enjoy what nanad and the guys do over on the everybody's eats podcast very detailed very nuanced and yeah always enlightening so do go and check that out Okay, we are going to take a very brief break now. We're going to dial Michael Jones back in and he's going to tell us all about the latest goings-on in Italy. We'll be right back. In Italy, Juve and Inter headed into match day 13, occupying the top two spots in the Serie A table. So against that backdrop, it was rather fitting that Sunday evening saw a tense match play out between the two great rivals, ultimately finishing 1-1. The two sides play a very contrasting brand of football and Juve are, of course, free from the midweek European duties, which could start to be heavily on Inter's squad. Taking that and both sides' recent performances into account, how might we perhaps expect the title race to further develop across the remainder of the season, Michael? Yeah, I think first and foremost, we obviously hope that the RBD Italia showed that there wasn't too much between the two teams. And last season, there wasn't a title race in Italy in the slightest. And I think the season before when AC Milan won, there was a title race at this stage between the two Milan sides, at least. I think Napoli under Spalletti was still involved at this stage two years ago. But gradually that became a two-horse race and then a one-horse race. So, yeah, first and foremost, I just hope that we're going to have a big title race in Italy this season. And what does make it really interesting is for the exact reasons you said and something we talked about on the podcast a bit. And in the last episode, we went a bit more in-depth on Juventus. These are two utterly different teams in Inter and Juve. And that was really on show during the match. But I think... Juventus actually approached this game a bit more positively than they may have approached some of their recent victories, especially when you think of their victory over Fiorentina and AC Milan, even against 10 men, they were happy to surrender the ball more to the Rossoneri in that game. And Juventus took the lead. It was a really good counter-attacking, flowing move. Dusan Vlaovic, who broke back into the side, um, taking Moise Ken's spot, he linked up really well with Federico Chiesa, playing a lovely one-two before caressing it into the bottom corner and gave Juve the lead. It only lasted a matter of minutes. And, you know, Juventus were actually caught out in a very unallegory fashion in the sense that Inter Milan broke at pace. Juventus were caught high up the pitch and the sort of sheer dynamism and pace of the Inter Milan side allowed them to cross the ball in from the right-hand side and from Marcus Turam to his strike partner, Latino Latoro Martinez. And, yeah, one of the things that really stood out, I guess, with both of those goals, and you may have guessed from what I just said as well, is that the striking partnerships for both teams are crucial to the way they play. Last week, we discussed Chiesa and Ken, but Vlahovic naturally falls into that equation, given the amount of money he cost, and that display was arguably one of his best displays in the last 12 months that I can remember. So I'd expect him to be playing a bigger part for Juventus, which will be key 
given they're a team with not loads of options in other up parts of the pitch at the very least. And Inter Milan, I think Marcus Toram and Lautaro Martinez has been one of the best partnerships in Italy so far this season. And whilst Inter Milan have been building this exciting project, team for the neutrals, purists, we saw that they, in their first season with Inzaghi, they fell a bit short, were still able to get Champions League qualification. We saw them win the Coppa Italia since and them get to the Champions League final, which they were obviously unable to win against Manchester City, but ran them much closer than many people expected. And now they're looking more of that kind of powerhouse you'd expect to see in a Champions League final so far this season. Whereas Juventus, for various reasons, Pogba, Fagioli, have really had to find anything they can this season in terms of depth. And a really interesting case in this match was the appearance of Nicolucci Caviglia, player who had only made a handful of appearances four seasons ago when Allegri was last at Juventus since spent a number of spells on loan and had only worked his way up into a Serie A club on loan earlier this year when he's at Salernitana and he did quite well there actually played a big part in them um, being comfortable and surviving in the top tier of Italy last season under Souza and yeah he he came into the game and, it, and did relatively well it, it Gazzetta della Sport were quite torn on his appearance, whether it was a, you know, the glass half full, whether it was a sign of Juventus, you know, having this abundance of quality coming through the ranks at the moment, or whether, you know, this is what they were resorting to. But it will be really interesting to see what comes up in the upcoming fixtures. Juventus have the likes of Monza, Napoli and Roma, all before the New Year's, whilst Inter Milan have Napoli and Lazio, some teams who have different runs of form but are always going to pose a test and it just begs the question just how much we can pay attention to how to forms now you know these are two really informed teams that are looking more comfortable each week but as a season develops you'd imagine into Milan's sort of strength and depth which I'll come on to in a moment to really play into their hands over the next few weeks but as to how they deal with the return of European football early next year will be another challenge, whereas Juventus almost have that clean run in the second half of the season. But I just found it interesting alone looking at Inter, Milan, um, Inter Milan's options. And if you look at the players who have played less than half the games for them in the season, many of them are new signings. Here in Zaghi's yet to sort of fully embed into the team. Benjamin Pavard, World Cup winner. Carlos Augusto, now a Brazilian international. He's made just one start, although he did come on against Juventus. Davide Fratesi, again, he's just made one start in the league, arriving from Sassuolo, very much sort of the air to Locatelli there. Davi Klaassen, experienced Dutch midfielder, just one start once again. And the likes of Marco Arnautovic and Juan Quadrado, very experienced players who have played, you know, a number of places over the last decade or so yet to make a start. So the roles those type of players will play and the way that Allegri, sorry, not Allegri, Inzaghi is able to bring them in and nurture them and, you know, make them fit in this team and make them effective in this system, I think will be really important. Whereas the Juventus were almost taught, stuck with what they've got for the time being up until January. And it's just how much Allegri can build on this to keep, that momentum going until then, until he does have the options of strengthening. He himself has downplayed their title race, you know, mind games at its finest. But Adrian Rabio said after the game that they're fully in this title race. And 
I, I think they are as well at this stage. I think in Milan have shown the odd sign of inconsistency or arguably complacency at times. And that's something I don't associate with this current Juventus side. Fascinating stuff, as ever. More on the title race that I love so much in Serie A. Uh, the old lady will no doubt be keeping an eye on Matthias Sule, who has been flourishing on loan at newcomers Frosinone. The 20-year-old Argentine winger had another standout performance, scoring for the Lazio-based side in their 2-1 victory over Genoa to leapfrog them over their much noisier neighbours into 10th. Amidst a pool of exciting loan talents at the club, what sets Sule apart from the rest, Michael? Yeah, he's a precocious talent and his numbers certainly set him apart from the rest. He's been that go-to player for Frosinone uh, so far this season, but he is a player who you know, both passes the eye test, as I think we could certainly say for the likes of Andrea Copani, who we've done these deep dives on earlier this season, but he also passes the test in terms of the underlying numbers also. And yeah, it was interesting. I really had to sort of restrict myself from talking about Sulu when I was talking about the options Juventus will have, but I would be hugely surprised if Juventus do not trigger that recall option that I believe they have on him in January. He's spoken openly about that and he said that he's happy with either one and that he's focused on the football, claiming that Serie A has a game every three days and that's enough for him to focus on. And he might be a bit disappointed when he goes to Juventus expecting European football and not having that to focus on so far this season. But I think he will play a key part in them getting back if he is to return in January and you would expect them to be to get back there regardless. But yeah, focusing more on the player himself, he's been at a tug of war um, an Argentine born, grew up in Argentina, but was eligible through relatives to qualify for Italy. Luciano Spalletti has been all over him over the past two international breaks, trying to get him called up um, for Italy. It feels like there's not many players in Serie A at the moment who haven't received an Italy cap over the past year or two. However, he's formally declined that offer now. And with that distraction also out of the way, He's now committed to Argentina. And one of the refreshing things he said in that interview when he announced that he would be playing for Argentina, he said he's not bothered about when the call-up comes in the near future. He says he appreciates there's a lot of good players in front of him. And there seems to be such a race for players to get that initial call-up sometimes when there is a tug-of-war between nations going between them. And I'm sure if there's a tug-of-war between Juventus and Frosinone, it will be much more one-sided to his parent club. But he scored four goals in his past six games and Frosinone have won three out of four of those games. And you can understand he's had a big role in those games as well. It was a long range rocket in the victory against Genoa. The goalkeeper, uh, Jose Martinez, certainly did him some favours as well by sort of parrying it into his near post or his near net. And he has been absolutely fundamental for the season that Frosinone have been having. He is, if you look at sort of his stats alone, he's in the top 10 for progressive carries in the league. Top 10, I think he's the fourth highest non-penalty goal scorer in Serie A. Playing balls successfully into the area. He ranks second, successful take-ons. He's third in Europe, only behind, well, in the top five leagues, at least, only behind Leroy Sane in second on 49. He has 45, Sula. And then first is Jeremy Dockett. And they're probably two of the players you'd associate at being the best in that in the world. 
just gives you an indication. He, he's got this beautiful balance where he's both explosive and also has guile and flair. And I don't think we maybe see that on such a consistent level in a 20-year-old winger. And I think it's frankly the reason why, in Argentina at least, he's and within sort of Juventus fan circles, he's been widely compared to Angel Di Maria, who was effective for Juventus last season. But Sula is a player who, you know, it feels like he's got more levels to his game. And I must admit, I think I was trying to draw parallels when I was trying to rank, you know, when we talk about the talents on the podcast. And I think Sula is maybe the most exciting talent I've ever talked about on the podcast, which kind of goes levels to explain it, it stating how important he can be. And I think he will play a big part in this title race if Juventus can use him properly. And I'll go on to that in a second. But I think the player he maybe reminds me most of is when Dejan Kuliseski had his breakthrough season again on loan in Italy at Palm on loan from Atalanta before they cashed in on him by selling him to Juventus. Obviously, didn't really work out for him at Juventus. But kind of similar characteristics. But I think Sula's arguably got more explosive pace than Kuliseski. I think Kuliseski is one of my favourite players to watch in the Premier League at the moment. But Sula also has this fantastic change of direction, which is kind of similar to Kulasevsky, who I think is probably one of the best at that in the business at the moment. And he's maybe more two-footed than Kulasevsky. And I think that's one of the things that really stands him out. He's got this great ability also to just shift his body and plays with his head up so much that a lot of his finishes, especially close range, you just see him send the keeper with the eyes straight away before tucking it in either at the near post, which is one of his favourite finishes, or at the far post a little bit on. I think just going on to this sort of, yeah, you mentioned this wider sort of frozen on a topic and, and being a real success story. They're 10th in the league, which is sensational. I think many people have banked on them to be like the Beneventos we had in recent seasons and Kremenice, who have just gone up and gone straight back down. They look like, you know, how they do with Sula will be a different question, but it looks like he could help them get enough points by the midway point where they won't really be in that equation so much and whilst he deserves enormous credit for their success there is also credit to be had <clears throat> there is also credit to be had elsewhere where the roles of um Rainier who's been on loan from Real Madrid he's kind of played in the middle of this free who play behind the striker he could be Walid uh, Chidira or it could be uh, Sula himself, who was sometimes playing that role, or Jamie Bates as well. But yeah, Rainier has been doing really well. And then we've also seen the emergence of Arion Ibrahimovic, who, from what I'm, the 17-year-old, he doesn't have a relation to Zlatan. But I know you're a fan, Ali. I remember you sent us a clip of him a few weeks ago. I think it was a, a sumptuous assist that he provided in the game. I uh, can't remember who, but he scored a goal and got an assist in his time already this season. So we've seen some really breakthrough talents. They've done really well. What, you know, Fabio Grosso isn't there. He led them to promotion last season. They're under new management now. But, you know, one thing Grosso has done really well is leave that legacy in place for their success this season. I guess my final point would just be is that how he adapts into this Juventus system will be important. He's not coming having never played for them before he scored for them last season. 13 appearances, four starts. He's a player that Allegri does appear to trust, but now he's got that game time, get the impression that he's prepared to elevate his game to another level. But Frozenone in the last month or two have been, you know, one of the teams higher, one of the higher teams in the league in terms of possession as opposed to Juventus. 
So he does offer that option as well of helping them be in a better team on the ball, but he might have to shift a little bit to their sort of counter-attacking ways at times. But he's still proven to be an, an extremely useful year. He still has sheer pace to bolster as well. So I think he'll be a crucial asset for them going forward. But for the time being, I think for us, no, no, you know, I think they've only got a month left of him. And you really hope that they enjoy him whilst they can because all the points he could gain could be absolutely pivotal in terms of them remaining in Serie A and, you know, having ambitions beyond that as well. After scraping their way to safety in the form of a unique relegation playoff last campaign, Elas Verona briefly built on that momentum, winning their opening two games, including a big scalp over Roma. Since then, however, they have reminded everyone why they were languishing in the first place, collecting just three points in 11 games. How can Barona stop the rot, Michael? Well, one of the things they really need to do is get winning again, which is obviously sort of a very basic choice. They've, yeah, they've, they've gone since August without winning a league game, and it's been pretty dire stuff when you look at them. They're not one of the lowest scorers in the league, interestingly enough. They've scored nine goals, but goals are still... Goals and their sort of attacking play, at least, have been a major problem. Um, for Marco Baroni. And he, one, I think one of the main tasks he's got to do is to get them sort of more creative and more confident going forwards. And there were signs of that. There were signs for optimism. They drew Lecce 2-2 at the weekend, a game which saw them go behind in the game as well. And they did respond relatively well. One of the real positives was Cyril and Gonja play. We talked about last season, 23-year-old uh, Belgian attacking midfielder slash winger slash forward play sort of anywhere along that front line. He's got a lovely left foot. He scored a really nice goal from a super tight angle um, to get his third league goal of the season, which makes him the club's top goal scorer and it's also matched his tally from last season. But not just under Baroni, but under Di Francesco. Before that, they're a team that have really struggled in front of goal ever since the departure of Igor Tudor a couple of seasons ago. Their top goal scorer last season uh, was on five goals. So and Don Ngonj looks like he's going to be sort of on his way to surpassing that. But they just haven't had any real firepower or consistency in attack. They've got the lowest XG in Serie A. And I think there's been this over-reliance on Ngonj as well. Even Baroni said himself after the match with Lecce, he said there were great signs that Ngonj were getting back to his best, but they know that they rely on him and he needs to raise his levels as does the rest of the team. But I think if you're putting that much pressure on a player in that situation, kind of begs the question, what other sort of managerial capabilities do you have to also create more goals. I don't think they were supported in their transfer market. The most expensive outlay was about £3 million. Um, but the sort of striking options that Ngonj has either played behind haven't been very good. The second top uh, goal scorer is Milan Juric, a bit of a veteran. He's never been a high scorer and he's only started half the games. He's got two goals and got one assist. And even... I think elsewhere, the likes of Darko Lazovic, who was a very important player for them last season in terms of staying up. They've not been able to get the continuity out of him. He's only made four starts. And 
the most high profile signing, which was on a free Ricardo Sapinara, who was a bit of a surprise one because he sort of reemerged himself at Fiorentina under Vincenzo Italiano. He's just not been able to settle partially due to injury, but also partially due to the system. He's only played 160 minutes since arriving in the summer. And despite making eight appearances, seven of them have been fleet and substitute appearances as well. So if they can get Sapanara into some vein of form, it does at least, Sapanara, a player who prefers to come in off the left and then Gonj off the right, it does at least offer Baroni the option in a the three five two or three four two one, depending which players he's going to play, a bit more balance going forwards, where they're not overly reliant on one creative outlet. But I think there's other options or other problems that he has to explore. You know, they've been one of the worst, they're the second lowest team in Serie A passes for short passes in the final third of the pitch and short passes into the penalty area. They're the lowest team in Serie A for short passes despite the possession not being too low which gives you a bit of a sign that they're a team that's happy to sort of sit on the ball at times without making too much of it and it does again bring into questions the energy levels that are there and I think there's fitness breeds confidence at times and whether Baroni is a case of simply these players just not maybe being at the you know we appreciate that any footballer at this level is going to be extraordinarily fit but in the context of comparing them against 19 other teams in Serie A, whether they need to improve those fitness levels in order to be able to do some of the basics of the game again, and hopefully that will breed confidence. Because the, it is it, quite apparent through just some of the things I talked about here that they've got a huge amount of issues that they um, need to deal with. They've got some, they've got a mixed bag of games coming up. Lazio and Fiorentina in the next three games. Udinese, who are a lot better than the last time we talked about them as well, also on the horizon. But they've got to look at games like that and start trying to pick them up. They've stopped um, what was a six-game losing run prior to the Udinese game with that draw, but they can't allow another losing run to fester as it did when they were having their previous draws also. Lovely stuff, as always, Michael. Always very enlightening to hear about the latest goings-on in Italy. And, yeah, we'll be yeah, interested to follow Matthias Sully as he develops and, yeah, potentially returns to his parent club, Juventus, in January. Maybe we'll have quite a significant bearing on the title race, as you say. OK, well, I think we'll conclude the episode there I'll thank Rudy Barlow for your time and I'll thank you Michael Jones for your time as well Michael what are your plans for the rest of the evening well, I'm going to keep up um, the Italian theme I'm going to make some Putanesca soon Ooh. and then I'm going to tune into AC Milan versus Borussia Dortmund in that crunch uh, game in the Champions League that is a, a fantastic group and I just hope regardless of who goes through that all teams are in the mix going into the final group game. What about yourself, Ali? Yeah, I think I'll um I'll do likewise and tune into that cracker of a tie. Rudy Barlow, what are your plans? There must be something lined up for you this evening in the wonderful Madrid. Yeah, nothing um that fun. And I include Barcelona Porto in that because I don't think that's going to be particularly <laughs> amusing for Goleras anywhere who are tuning in, but uh, but yeah, I'll be keeping an eye on that and the and the other Spanish sides, and um, so yeah, pretty much just just that, and uh, maybe I'll uh, 
you've inspired me, Michael. Maybe I'll try and whip up something, probably Italian rather than Spanish for dinner as well. Gents, I'll thank you both one last time and I'll thank the listener for your continued support. Until next time, stay safe, stay well. See you in another two weeks. Goodbye.